Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. For today's Magnified with Matt Cooper, a topic that I've been interested in for a while, how social media is being used by companies to promote themselves and what influence it has on potential customers. But while that's the topic, the person I decided to talk to is extremely interesting in his own right, in the way that he's developed his own career, particularly in dealing with dyslexia, and has really prospered, becoming the head of social media at Ireland's most successful company, Ryanair, and now going out into his own business as a consultant. So we're going to talk to Michael Cochran about his extraordinary story in this latest enjoyable, I hope to you, episode of Magnified with Matt Cooper, conducted at my kitchen table in Dublin. And of course, we again thank Strategic Park Connect for their assistance in this. Michael Corcoran, I'm of a certain generation where I do use social media and I know there are people older than me who use social media, but do people of my age, and I'm in my late 50s, really understand social media? Well, I'm not too far behind you, Matt. I'm, I'm, I'm turning 40 next year, so I'm no kid either using the platforms, but everybody understands it. I think it's just so many of us and people are before me or after me, whatever way you want to say it is, they are growing up with it and being native to it um, so it becomes this bit easier but no doubt it doesn't matter what age you are once you use the tools and get comfortable with the tools you become more comfortable with it and use it in very positive ways So what are your chosen social media platforms to use as a consumer rather than as somebody who makes content? Oh that's great it's evolved over time uh, I am a big fan of of Twitter. Always have been and always will. It's where e- even what Elon Musk is doing to it. Even with it, and I don't think it's going to change too much either until he 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 maybe makes some more idiotic decisions um, in the next six to twelve months around trust and transparency, which I think he's he's on that route to doing. But until something like Instagram Threads comes and completely takes it over, it's not going to go away. Like. He people were worried when they saw big players like Disney and McDonald's pull advertising revenue from it. But he's not concerned because he knows the data. If you remember back about three or four years ago, Facebook had similar issues over trust and transparency and a lot of the big advertisers pulled out of it. But the funny thing is they weren't concerned because the big advertisers aren't the biggest spenders of advertising on those platforms. It's SMEs. I think it's 80-90% of all the advertising that's spent on those platforms are SMEs. So he, when he made that bold statement a few weeks ago when he told most of those big brands including Disney to F off you know he knows that it's not going to impact advertising spend. He just needs to shift his focus in order for more SMEs to spend on the platform. But yet there have been reports that he's down about a billion and a half dollars in revenue this year. But he's going to be when the big players pull out. But over time, I I don't think it's going to be a a huge, huge impact. It's going to have a short-term trauma. But again, it's a platform that you and I and everybody uses as, as the immediate source of information or breaking news or following a sporting event. It's the main place most people go. Now, I'm going to contradict myself a little. Having said that, 
only 12% of all social media users use those platforms. So it's actually a small amount of people, but it's the quality of the audience that are using those platforms, which is really important. The media, publications, people of influence, you know, that's where the news breaks, that's where news carries and it filters out them beyond into the other platforms. So until all of those influential people come off those platforms, I don't see it breaking down for a quite a long period of time. And what about the issues though in relation to allowing content on it that really is offensive and even dangerous? Should there be better moderation of Twitter? And then also, if you look at the likes of Facebook, given that there's been an enormous amount of controversy when you see what Francis Hogan did a few years ago as a whistleblower showing that they didn't care really what was there. See, there's a lot... There's a life cycle of how these platforms set up and build. Um, in the early days, it's a startup. They don't have any money. What they need is many, uh, as many audience users to use the platforms as they possibly can. When they grow that big audience base, they offer out then to brands. We're going to give you lots of free reach to reach these people. So come over onto these platforms and play. The brands do it. Then when, when it reaches a certain point, they go, OK, now we need to pay back the investors. We need to make money. So they start doing advertising. So then when they start doing advertising, they start making money. Now it's the time that they only start, okay, now we actually need to protect the people on these platforms. So we have a bit of money now we can invest in moderation. It takes so long and TikTok is going through this stage as well at the moment where they have to improve their moderation because that is a very dark place when it wants to be. It's very hard to control such a large fragmented space with so many people in instantly can say or do whatever they want. It's a very difficult thing to moderate and control. So I can understand where things and problems will happen, but they're like there's only so many rules that they can put in black and white on, on their blog for transparency. There's only so big moderation teams they can have and so much the robots or whatever they're using to do it can, can protect it. But you can't stop idiots from saying stupid things on the internet and that's not really so going to change. So the genie's out of the bottle. There's, there's no way back, is there? Well, there's no way back. And that's, it's just, again, we just have to, to try and figure out how we can be less dickheads on the internet, which is a very silly, a difficult thing to do because you're not going to control. Like so many differences of being, people are influenced so differently that you're not ever going to be able to control that. That's quite dystopian almost though, isn't it? It is. It is to an extent. But again, it's like the parish pump mentality of years ago. Like anybody can go stand in the middle of a town square and shout what they want and people will like it, people will won't and people will believe it. It's just, it's now on steroids. And it is a scary thing. But again, that's evolution. And uh, I, I certainly don't know how they're going to deal with it. They can say it and it makes a great PR headline that they're committed to safety and committed to transparency and we are going to improve moderation, increase moderation, but there's no way in hell because there are too many platforms. The internet is so vast and so big that there is a way for somebody to express themselves no matter what. I'm going to ask you about your new agency in a moment, but just tell me how you got to this stage in your career. And I do want to talk to you a lot about Ryanair as well, where you've probably come to most prominence. But how did you get into all of this? I would have been in, I studied in Waterford. I did an undergraduate in health science, believe it or not. I'm a, I originally wanted to be a farmer, didn't have enough acres, wasn't the oldest son, so I wasn't going to touch that at all. And um, I went to Waterford to do health science because the next thing in my mind was I wanted to be a vet or a physio. And again, vet, not enough points, physio, not. So I went to do health science. So studied there for four years, thought that was where I needed to go. But as, say, anatomy and physiology started to build up, I, I just wasn't strong or I, I started to become weak. And in the third year of college, we did this marketing module 
And I just got a grow for it. I got a grow for understanding how to communicate and solve problems. I got a grow for the creativity side of things. So I started to explore it more. I went and I did a Master's of Marketing up in um, <clears throat> Dublin Business School. And I'm certainly not a, a daddy's business school boy by any means. I self-funded that. I was a bouncer at night on the streets of Dublin for the year. I did a, a bouncer five years previous in Waterford. So um, I paid my way to uh, try and figure this out. And then once I was there, I needed to try and get my foot in the door. Um, and I had to figure out how to do it. And I was lucky enough that I reached out to Peter Breen. I'm not sure if you're familiar with who at the time would have been the PR and communications manager at Leinster Rugby. Rugby, yeah. And I literally begged him and hounded him uh, to the point where he, I think just out of sympathy, gave me some experience doing media relations on match day. And then at the same time, you're probably familiar with Wilson Hart and Public Relations. Uh, I hounded them. I got a two-week internship and I managed to then get offered a, a six-month placement and it kind of rolled on for about a year and a half. When that happened, I kind of decided I needed to stop doing the door work. <laughs> stop being a bouncer. And where, where were you a bouncer? I would have been a bouncer in Ruby's Nightclub in Waterford and Oxygen for three or four years while studying in college. The morning after, the college nights were interesting walking through the library when you caught eye contact with somebody you may have uh, helpfully walked out the door the night before but in Dublin I would have done the Workman's Club uh, Dicey's via Crystal um, Tromco's if you remember that I back do. at the time um, Chocolate Factory and all these places so I would have done quite a lot but I would have worked full so time So on and this is a diversion I didn't and expect Diversions are good What sort of personality do you have to have to be a good bouncer? I think you need multiple personalities I think you need a good cop and a bad cop on the door I think you need to have the best of both. You need somebody who's firm and fair and then somebody who can de-escalate a situation because when you have people who are intoxicated or, or being refused entry to somewhere, that is, they can be offended for, for numbers of reasons. So you have to try and find a way to navigate and I guess be the community manager or the social media manager of the nightclub. Um, I guess I would have called myself the good cop on the door. I would have been a bit of an entertainer. I would have been de-escalating, and done things in very funny ways in order to try and, and get people to understand why it was and try and to convince a drunk person they're not getting in can be difficult sometimes, especially when they think they're pulling the wool over your eyes about six times coming to the door, changing their jackets. But um, yeah, I, I think you need multiple personalities. You need somebody who's firm and fair because there are times when there's difficult moments and people do get confrontational. Um, and did you ever have to get physical? Oh, all the time, yeah. Like in Waterford, it would have been a, a tougher place and you would have worked with a lot of old school doormen who were bodybuilders. And uh, I think one of the funniest moments and yet scariest moments for me was, well, there's two actually, was in Muldoon's Bar, which is we used to be underneath Oxygen Nightclub on, on John Street in Waterford. And there was a guy from uh, a motorcycle gang that got uh, escorted out of the bar the night before, I think quite heavy handedly. Um, and the next evening I was on the early, so I would have been there on the front door as things were building up for the night. And all of a sudden, 30 or 40 guys in leather waistcoats came walking down the hill. And at this time, the doors opened out and we were backs against the door and these guys were literally in our faces. It was one of the most terrifying moments I've ever saw. But again, me being me, I, oh, I was at least able to de-escalate the situation whilst we got on the radio and got every doorman in Waterford to come and protect us and help us. I think the second one then was a, a lovely bunch of stone masons from uh, Connemara came down for a stag night. And literally, that went hell for letter out in the streets of Waterford. Um, safe to say, I'm very good at sitting on people, not very good at striking people. <laughs> what was it about marketing, to get back to what you do now, <laughs> rather than being a doorman? What was it about marketing 
that appeal to you? Because do people actually understand a lot of time what marketing is about? Because they sometimes confuse it with selling, don't they? Or is it selling? Well, marketing would be associated with selling. At the end of the day, the whole objective of the game of marketing is to try and grow your business. Now, there's branding, which is different, which is trying to build a brand or build some sort of connection or resonance with with the actual brand itself. But marketing can be sales and referred to as sales. And there's, again, it's a very difficult one to unpack and define sometimes. But I got into it because, again, I I think it was the creative side of it. Um, I think the communication side I really, really enjoyed too because... As somebody who's dyslexic, I probably compensated really well in public speaking and presenting. And I quite like that side. And I quite like journalism. I quite like presenting and I quite like engaging with people at that level. Um, so I kind of gravitate towards that, which is why I, I hounded the likes of, say, Leinster Rugby for communications roles or PR at first. But when I got in there, it was a bit different. Like the entertainment, the media relations, the the storytelling side of it, I really, really enjoyed. But being dyslexic, it became very difficult to, to communicate with journalists and do it in a way where at that time, there would have been a bit of a stigma over mistakes and grammar and things like that and not knowing. So that created, I, I guess, a lot of frustration for people in that side of the world to uh, to rate me Um but at the same time, social media started to emerge and became a thing. But sorry, Scott, when did you become aware you were dyslexic? As an adult. Now, I would have been in remedial English in primary school, if people remember what remedial English was. So there used to be a, a, a remedial teacher who used to come into the schools yeah. on a week-to-week basis. And I would have been in there with three or four other people, including my sister. Then when I went to secondary school, I would have done the entry exams to the Christian Brothers um, to figure out what level am I at. And I would have been in foundational English the whole way through school. It was funny because most other subjects I would have done really well at and and excelled at. Um, But it it wasn't until I was an adult that I, I actually then went and looked and got tested and trying to figure this out because I was just making too many mistakes. And it wasn't from being lazy and it wasn't from the lack of trying to reread things <clears throat> to the point where I used to read any email or any form of communications backwards in order to make sure at least I would spell things right before then figuring out does it make com- does the comprehension make sense. So after time, I think it was... I forget the name of um against he's a he's a journalist or, or a podcaster also he was dyslexic and he 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 was speaking about it quite often on LinkedIn and I actually reached out to him and I said did you get tested and he pointed me in the right direction of of who to contact and get tested and I went and got tested I think it cost five hundred quid at the time I can't remember but yeah no I, I found out then but I, I kind of always knew and was it good for you to find that out. It was, but it was still a challenge because in my early days of my career, I wasn't rated as highly as what I would like to. Because again, if you if you looked at the examples of Leinster Rugby and, and, and Wilson Hart and PR and all those places, I know myself, the second if I get in the door somewhere, I'll do everything I can to excel. And I think the proof is in the pudding, no matter where I worked, that whether it was a two-week internship, I got, I got to sit on for a year and a half. I went into another independent agency after Wilson Hartland when I, I tried to pave my way for social media on a four week, I sorry, on an internship. In four weeks, they offered me a full-time job. So there's something in my, I guess, curiosity, relentlessness that allowed me to, to, to do as best I could. But even in those situations, if I wrote an email, no matter how many times I looked at it and I would have stayed longer and worked work longer to make sure I did it, I always made mistakes. And there was still a perception that I was lazy or incompetent because of that. Now, that's easy for me to point fingers at people, but I never told anybody. 
but uh, I, I had it because again, fear of judgment and fear of being rated that you wouldn't excel or you wouldn't climb. They would, they, you would stay where you are, say at a certain level. And I, I will be quite ambitious. I'm quite a hungry person. My entire family are. But at one stage, it was until somebody came to me in that job, two, actually two girls, uh, Raquel, uh, a lovely Spanish girl who used to work with us, and Tammy Hackett, who was an, an Aussie who came over to work here. And they knew something was up because they could feel my energy in a room. They could see the ideas coming through. When I presented work, there wasn't a problem, but they were spotting the mistakes all the time. And they literally said, something's not right here. Tell us what's up. So I told them and they went, you know what we're going to do? Anything that has to go out that's important, we're going to be your second eyes. We're going to be your gatekeepers and we're going to protect you because we know you're, you're great in all these areas. We don't want to let this get in the way. And there was, there was a person in that business who, who didn't rate me and who didn't judge me because of what they were seeing in client emails or pieces of communications or typos on a presentation that, you know, thought I was being sloppy. But it wasn't because I was probably working extra hours to try and make sure that that was perfect. But it's something I couldn't control. And have you ever been able to get it under control? Have you had no, no is, is it possible? No, it's not. There'll always be mistakes. I even use really great tools like Grammarly. Grammarly is this, um, you know, grammar AI tool yeah. that's on the internet and I pay $150 a year and it helps clear it up. But no matter what, even that can't maybe um, decipher certain Irish, you know, tonalities or, or even certain comprehension. But I'll always make mistakes. Like, it's so funny that like <laughs> uh, sending messages to my wife it's like, and it could be a one-line message, but it still doesn't make sense. And she has to try and decipher what I'm trying to say. And like, it's so funny when I find people who can decode my writing, how much of a really good relationship I have. Um, but no, you can never control it. It's it's quite difficult. It's quite frustrating. I'm getting better at it. But like, for example, I could be after using Grammarly. I could be after reading it four or five times and I press send. I'm like, geez, that was a brilliantly crafted email. Perfect. And then you look back and it's like... Oh shit. <laughs> you're talking about all the stuff you write. Does it create problems for you when you're reading things? No, that's the thing. Reading is a lot easier. Um, I don't know why. Even the digestion of information is harder. So reading and learning, I always found difficult. Listening and learning, I find much easier, which is why audiobooks have completely transformed my ability to consume more information. Podcasts, for example, what we're talking about here, it allows me to do it. And what I do then to try and improve I guess the, the absorption of the information, I'll doodle with it. So I'll start to mind map or I'll start to take notes, which allows me then to focus even more and I tend to take on more information because secondary school and college was, was really hard because it was so much learning and writing then under pressure that I don't even know how I got through it. And I like I wouldn't have done a bad leave insert. My first leave insert was part grammar part mischief because I was an absolute gobbishite as a teenager I repeated my leaving cert I went to another school and I doubled my points because I actually paid attention but um, yeah it, it, it's it's a struggle but it's I've become more confident because even in how I've I guess excelled in what I've done creatively in social media I've played to my strengths really really well I've become more self-aware now and accepting of the things I'm not really good at and I'm building people around me then to try and protect it Take us through after Wilson Hartnell what sort of businesses did you get involved in and we'll get to Ryanair from We'll get there. to Ryanair the big one so I would have went then I, I actually quit Wilson Hartnell after a year and a half because I didn't see progression because of the things we just spoke about clearly I couldn't and who would because it, it's such an important part of that, that role but I guess 
young and emotional me would have had a chip on my shoulder that I, I didn't want to quit or fail. But it was Sharon Murphy in there who kind of gave me good advice to try and get out of it. And she gave me, she sat me down and she talked me through the areas and strengths that I, I was good at in order, without saying, Michael, you need to give up. She did her best way to communicate to me to move on. So eventually the penny dropped. And at the time I was so pissed off about it. Um, I thought nobody rated me. I, confidence was hit and it was quite a long time to get through. And funny enough, I were coming through where we're recording today. I used to live in a studio apartment over the Domino's down the road. An absolute hole of a place. I had no money. I know nothing. And it was an absolute nightmare to, to navigate through. It was such a low moment because I was questioning my capabilities. But then I eventually I kept on applying. I kept on hustling. I kept on trying to figure out. Again, I hate using that word hustle, but I kept on figuring out how do I get in? I, I noticed I worked a little bit on social media in that space. And that was something Sharon said I was quite good at in terms of understanding the creative, creative side. And, you know, and this was only emerging really as only, something for agencies at that time. At at that the time, time and literally. corporates probably weren't engaging really. No, none at all. And it was just, it was just literally tick box. We would have had Diageo as a client and they would have been the early adopters on it become, being who they are and Guinness and Smithics and all those brands trying to use them and it was quite Facebook heavy at the time because that was the only one out a little bit on Twitter but again Facebook was the place where most people were consuming so it was at that time I started to I guess build intel and build experience on it and I had a bit of time and it was something I was quite enjoying on so I then went well how do I how do I focus on this this seems to be an emerging thing that I'm going to learn as it grows so I'm going to have probably an advantage over other people in advertising so I went and I looked at independent agencies and there was a couple around and I literally applied to everyone and anything not getting breaks but there was a an independent agency called in the company of Huskies that were based down at the East Link Bridge um, up in the fourth floor and um, and I applied to them. They were looking for it. And I just sent a cheeky email to them. Um, you know, basically a husky looking for a new home, almost like a lost and found poster. <laughs> um, and within that, they, they gave me a call up. They brought me in and they said, listen, this is a an internship, not a lot of money. I said, I don't care. Foot in the door. I'm in. Uh, four weeks I was in there working on a couple of uh, accounts and clients. And within four weeks, they offered me a full time job. Absolutely. My own but got my confidence back. So worked there for... I think best part of three or four years um, and it was at a time then I was getting better, getting good, but probably not getting paid enough for it um, and I kind of reached a certain level of, of growth. I needed a next step. So again, I went looking and I eventually found a, an agency called 8020, which were um, minority bought by WPP, which is Ogilvy again. So back into Eli Place where I left four or five years ago. Because they own Wilson Hartland as well. Yeah, exactly. They were in there at the time. So I applied there and I eventually went through the, the interview process, got offered a job and I went back to my marketing director at the time, John Forrest. And I told him, and he was like, well, I, I was terrified at this stage because they gave me my break. They gave me my confidence back. It was a really great place to work as well. Um, so it was, it was quite an emotional decision. But the first thing he said to me, he said, congratulations. He said, the one thing I'll, I'll always ever tell people is you should always know your market value. You should always know that no matter where you go, there's, there's always somebody out there who probably will rate you higher and it will hold a better value from you from a, a salary point of view. He basically said to me, it, they were, it was at a period of growth for them. So I, I don't think I can match what they're giving, but I know I can grow and develop you in the way you If that's not enough, well, then you're going to have to make a decision. So I made the decision and I eventually left and um, went to 80-20 then, which was, again, another three or four year stint in there working with some great clients like Bank of Ireland, Guinness Storehouse, Aldi, you know, working on, on social and digital. I became head of social media. So that was kind of the next step. But 
I guess each of these steps, whilst in traditional terms, seems to be your 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 job hopping, but they accelerated my experience, you know, because I got exposed to more. Yeah, elements. but those at that time was it just mainly corporate announcements and very basic vanilla no, type statements it, it, on it social media. Get, it started to get more creative. It started to get into like video starters that would come into fruition. Video started to grow. You know, activations, stunts, using the platforms in very creative ways. This big building of everything is content, high volume, high frequency started to build. Now, looking back, it was the biggest, again, as I said earlier, Ponzi scheme ever where everyone's just creating content for the sake of it because social media is only 15 years old. So everybody knows the potential it is, but every agency, marketing, PR, digital, knew there was an opportunity to make money from. So most... prescriptions to how to use the platforms was always built around high frequency more 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 and why because the agencies made money off the content production so more video more graphic design all of this and it wasn't really at the time taught very well strategically and if I'm being totally honest it still isn't Um, and that's something I want to fix and improve but as I got around I, I, I started to get exposed to more creative opportunities more different brands bigger budgets more ways of using the platform platform so it kind of built all the skills and the, the basic competencies that I needed and I, I think it was was it 2017 or 18 I kind of hit a, again another threshold within say 80 20 on what to do and they were going through a, a state of change too and they, they, they knew I had something in me from a skills point of view but they weren't able to utilize it or in most cases, monetize it. Um, so I went, and I would have had a great relationship with with, with the, the owners there, and I still do, funnily enough, they're my new partners now. Um, so again, it goes in full circles. So I didn't want to disappoint them and be a burden on them, so I went looking elsewhere again, and I stepped through the foot of Paddy Power Betfair and worked on Betfair for three years. Because Paddy Power, well, the Paddy Power part mm. of that would have had a reputation for advertising stunts mm. and I got involved with them on one, which was the trip to North Korea with Dennis Rodman <laughs> in 2014. But Ken Robertson, who I think probably would have been gone by the time Just you were out, yeah. Ken had a title of Head of Mischief. Mm. That there was a belief that to make an impact, Paddy Power had to do things that were outlandish, that were attention-grabbing. Well, they were, they were a little bit ahead of their time. And again... Even before social media, that was the thing they were doing. And as we get to talking about Ryanair, you can probably see some similarities in how both brands grew and how they bootstrapped and grew from nothing, how they understood publicity was a low-cost, high-reaching way of getting top-of-mind awareness. So they were never afraid, and it it was in their DNA. What they did was, and what a lot of people can learn from, is they understood the main motivations of why people go to social media. And this hasn't changed and I don't think this will ever change. The two main motivations people go, one is to be entertained and two is to escape from the shit show that's going on in the in their world or around the world today. And whether people like it or not, that is the reality. Um, and a lot of times it goes wrong is people are trying to be overly polished, overly filtered and trying to be so passive in their storytelling. They, they, these are the people who are putting what the word content. Content, exactly. Okay. And I, again, I would loosely use an inverted commas here behind the microphone that it's content and they used to do a lot quite a lot of passive storytelling now that doesn't mean passive storytelling doesn't have a place but for the majority of social media users it is done in really small pockets and bursts throughout the day 
If you're working a 12-hour shift, you're on your lunch break, you're going to have your little 10-minute serotonin dose. If you go to the toilet, and whether people are going to be honest or not, people use their phones in the toilet in small bursts. Sometimes they're staying there way too long, and I'm guilty of that too. But it's these small bursts and moments throughout the day is when people normally use it. And they're scrolling at the speed of light. So to grab attention and to entertain is quite a difficult thing to do if you're not tailoring your content to those needs. And Paddy Powers did that exceptionally well. You used the phrase earlier, doom scrolling. Mm. Just explain that to me. Well, again, the, the, the guys who built these platforms aren't stupid. Like, like once they grab your attention in a moment in time to, again, get a burst of, of entertainment from the content, it's clearly releasing some sort of serotonin or hormone in the body and, and you continuously scroll. Um, it becomes an addiction um, and you end up mindlessly scrolling more than probably what you expected to do and you, and you get lost. Um, and the the, the News feeds are, are again built to keep your attention because the more attention and the more time you spend on the platforms, the better it is for the platforms because it means they can serve more ads and the more ads they serve, the more money they make. And you end up consuming a lot of rubbish, don't you? You do. And there's a lot of rubbish on there to consume and we're all so guilty of doing it. Come back to Paddy Power for me. So what did you learn there? I learned, now I, I, I won't take credit for the Paddy Power site, Michal Nagel, a fine cork man, um, is the person behind Paddy Power's social media, along with a few others like Paul Mallon, who would have been, again, Kenny's uh, successor in the head of mischief. They would have been responsible for such amazing work. I worked on the Betfair brand, which in betting times would have been an innovator in, in bookmaking because they created the Betfair exchange, where you were betting against other bettors as opposed to the bookmaker. So it became this very innovative space. But I would have worked on Betfair brand and predominantly outside of Ireland it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been a big brand in Ireland compared to, to Paddy's uh, clout uh, I would have worked there for three years and I was working on some seriously big things like they, the sponsorship investments in, in betting is ridiculous I would have worked with Arsenal Football Juventus Football FC Barcelona and some of the hosts of the biggest footballing talent around Doing what with them? Creating content and, and that's again I think the biggest thing I learned and the problem was Betfair as a brand and looking back and reflecting they invested so much in sponsorship that when you get a sponsorship deal you get assets and those assets are essentially access to players in order to make content and because they spent so much they had so much of these assets available and all of our time and energy went in creating content for the sake of content because they invested so much millions in that asset that we didn't actually get under the hood and figure out well well, what is the role of social media for potentially people who use the Betfair brand or the Betfair exchange? And what can we do? Or, or is there? Or should we show up? Because again, the question I'll always talk to people is, if you don't know why you're there, why are you doing it in the first place? Because you might be wasting time, resource and budget to try and solve some other problems that you could do elsewhere from the marketing side of things. But I think what I learned there, and it was probably all the previous times too, to the point I get to, to Ryanair, where I... I was in the industry for 12 years at the time and I literally ripped up the playbook and I, I went again because I knew something wasn't right and I wasn't thinking in the way I should have been to how to use the platforms but that's because I probably didn't have control of it and I didn't have a say and I couldn't make the decisions. So when I did, I started to think differently and think outside the box about how I can actually shift the dial or how the platforms can actually play in a role to driving awareness or actually solving a problem that the brand might have. Tell us, we got to Ryanair mm. and you made Ryanair the number one brand for social media. How? What did you do with Ryanair? 
Ooh, let's let's unpack it. <clears throat> so I observed for about four or five months and figured out what is the opportunity. And I, Sorry, I actually, when you went to Reiner, what did they ask you to do? They said I had a carte blanche responsibility for the platforms and they wanted to become famous on the internet, essentially using it in the way that probably they've used PR for, for many, many years. Um, is this because it's, they perceived it as low cost? I mean, one of the things that I've often thought about O'Leary and having written a book about him is that he very much saw doing publicity himself as a way of getting free advertising and would always try and throw in towards the end of interviews or middle of interviews, start of interviews, low prices, low costs, all this sort of stuff, kept hammering away the message and was prepared to be out there and outspoken about things in a way that few other business leaders were mm. simply because it got publicity for Reiner. Bingo. That's exactly how we, we, we followed script and it was one important part. Um, and we learned a lot from it. And again, I would have been from the outside before the time quite a big admirer of, of O'Leary. Again, how he transformed aviation and democratised travel since what, the mid, mid-80s has been mind-blowing. How he understood. But that was the aim. It was like... The business is so lean and so sophisticated that all of the investment and time goes back into the operation because it's the operation and the product that's making money, regardless of whatever marketing does. And I'll give you a great example. Um, O'Leary, when he came to the marketing team and he said, he put this question, he understands marketing. This man is a very clever man, but he is so confident that no matter how many marketing people are there within that department or how much money is spent on marketing, that Ryanair will reach the 126 million passengers by 2026 because he believes in the product and the operation so much. So his question was to the department, what is the role of marketing? What a bloody great question because that's what I love about the place. There's just no bullshit. And there's, there's, there's just focusing on the right things to drive a business forward. And he was never going to overinvest in marketing because it it, it 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 did a few things. It was it was probably wasteful budget when he knew there was cheaper ways of doing it, and it was also a, a perception. It was also a almost like if we're trying to be fluffy and overspend, we're not a lean airline and we don't obsess about the operation, and that sends a message to people as well that because every other airline, every other brand was spending maybe 10, 20 times the budget or the headcount on marketing. But we still at the same time had to match the amount of reach and, and publicity they were getting to stay competitive. But everything was all about optics and, perce- and perception and how to flex about the business there were. And I'll, I'll give you another good example. And this came from Eddie Wilson, who's the, the CEO and again, another interesting, great guy. When they went in to buy the Boeing planes, they they were talking interiors and they brought out all the books of all the letters and the finishes. And in order to show that they only cared about one thing and one thing only, they said, do whatever you want and literally handed the books back. And this is why those planes are bright yellow, because they didn't care. And it sends a message. The marketing and the approach to everything we do sends a message to people about what the type of business they're trying to operate. But O'Leary would have been very hands-on in relation to PR, down to writing press releases or standing over the shoulder of those writing the press releases mm. and rewriting it for them. Uh, he, he still is. <laughs> he, he still has the time, OK. <laughs> A- advertising campaigns, he would have been known to have done the copywriting mm. on the ads for newsprint in particular. Uh, to have even negotiated the rates at which he was actually paying. So does he get as involved in the social media? I mean, does he understand, operate Twitter, 
TikTok, Instagram, whatever. When he wants something put on the platforms, he tells us and we do it. Why? He's the boss. But he stays away. It's probably the one area he probably feels he's weakest at. He probably won't say it. He understands how big the, the opportunity is. But because he's known and experienced PR and advertising so much, and he still does those advertising, sticks his nose in, he, he's still always frugal about the cost. And that's just who he is. He obsesses about everything to get that cost down, no matter where you go. Even when you're negotiating with people and they come back, final offer. No, it's never the final offer. Always go one more. So... With social, I, I just, it was it was probably too far of a reach for him to really understand how it works. He, again, understands marketing, but he figured it out. So we were lucky enough that we're probably the only team within the marketing department where he wasn't hands-on. Yeah, but is it also because effectively it costs nothing for Reiner to be active on all those social media sites? I would imagine so. And I think there was a moment where he actually got an appreciation for it and he understood that what we were doing, we were doing right. But what about the voice? Because I think Ryanair has developed on his social media uh, reputation for being cheeky, but also confrontational, not afraid to actually take on your customers and argue with them. Well, we can all connect the dots and say where that has derived from. And like... The Ryanair social media strategy is built on, say, four variables. One is brand insight, one is category insight, one is customer, and one is the social media landscape. And it's that tone of voice that has been present in Ryanair's communications and the DNA to be a disruptor has been a huge lever for it. Um, when it comes to category, again, we mentioned that like social media is full of all these fake filtered idealistic travel experience content that all the other airlines were doing and also trying to be presenting themselves that as an airline too and when it boils down to it it's just big metal machines 35,000 feet in the air and it's really uncomfortable for everyone unless you're flying first class and even at that it's it's not that comfortable so we knew that if we, we use those as points of difference that we could stand out from the crowd and immediately get attention. And attention is a huge problem on social media because not only are you competing with yourself if you send too many mixed messages out there, you're competing with the category. And then you're competing with other people on the internet like the media and just general social media users. So to, f to grab people's attention is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And if you go back to what, again, O'Leary and Ryanair did for many, many years to grab attention in PR, it was those lines, those disruptive comments, those speaking, you know, about the rever irreverently about things that were going on in the world was getting him front page every day or whenever he spoke. And even when he still speaks, he gets global coverage. And we learned a lot from that. You speak very highly of him. Why did you leave Reiner? Well, I didn't leave because of him. I, I left because of the marketing department. Again, there, it, it I suppose we have to be a little bit careful here, do we, for legal reasons? Oh, completely. Like, and again, because you did put up a LinkedIn uh, post to which had people go, "Whoa, what's that about?" And again, I when I did it, I uh, a couple of weeks before, my brother gave me. Um, I don't know whether it was advice, but it was a quote that stuck with me. You can take me up the steps of the court, but don't take me in the door. That's <laughs> what he said to me, and I was like, I left because of the culture of the marketing department. Uh, I couldn't stand over from the personal commentary or the abusive behaviour of a certain individual that, you know, deflated teams, demotivated teams and, and just took it too personally and not professionally. Now, whether that's systemic within the business, I can't really comment on that. Um, asking about admiring O'Leary, I think I'll always admire him. I'm a little disappointed in how things 
unfolded. I loved the business. I went there because of the, the no BS mentality and obsessing about the product. Because if you obsess about the product, that's half the battle. You've done something during this interview that interests me because you've done it more than nearly anyone else in this podcast series. You have name-checked so many people that you give thanks to, which is a great quality. I'm really impressed by it. But even the social media, like it wouldn't have been the success it was without the team of people I put in. Again, I understand, you know, the importance of that. I'm quite humble. I'm lucky enough that I don't have an ego. I don't think I ever will because... Like, I'm having even imposter syndrome in here. And I said it before I came in. Like, I'm... Why? Not to blow smoke up your arse, but again, as a teenager who should have been listening to music, I would have been listening to the last word going home from school. (laughs) Hang on, I'm not doing it that long, surely. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm not that old either. But even at that, I used to sit at the front of the school bus going home because the bus driver uh, used to have the last word on. And again, I I, I like that. And I'm... I don't forget, I guess, where I come from. I don't forget the people who give me breaks. So I always make sure that uh, I'm aware of it's not just me. And I'll never, ever claim that I am this guru or expert around social media. Yes, I'm on the tools and I would have the best informed view as a human being because it's my full-time job. But there's more than one person delivering on this on a day-to-day basis. Well, tell us about the new business you've set up. Again, this 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 will give you another example. Um, I was on three months garden leave when I finished up at Ryanair. Um, when I resigned, 24 hours later, I got a lovely letter and um, to say, we'll pay you three months, but just get the hell out of here, um, which was interesting. But over That the, was when you handed your notice. That's then. when I handed in my notice, commenting on, say, what happened. Yeah. Um, and obviously protecting. So again, we'll be careful on how we say it. But over the three months, when I, I kind of gave a cheeky announcement on LinkedIn that I would be available for hire in November. And I got in on data with calls and messages, partly curious about what next, partly curious about wanting to work with me, also a bit nosy, wondering what happened. Um, but over those three months, it started to unpack that there was really a lot of problems in the field of social media and how it was built so much on tactics and not well informed about how it can have impact for a brand or business. Then there was the operational side of it in businesses where it was completely dysfunctional. So after all these conversations, and these are two areas I really enjoy about social media because like, yes, it's a creative space, but where I get most of my kicks out of is is problem solving. And again, I think it goes back to being a dyslexic thinker. Branton has kind of crafted that word that it's not, you you don't have dyslexia, you're a dyslexic thinker. And I even think the Oxford Dictionary now is, is it, it's in it and it's classified as it is more of a, a, a skill than okay. a inhibitor or whatever you want to call it. But I think it's that, that I can spot things outside the box. I can look at insight that's displayed in front of me and I can find ways to use the platforms to have that impact. So with that and with the team orgs, I really love training, coaching and developing people. I really love people uh, trying to to carry them out to be better than me. So with those two areas and all the conversations I had, um, I saw there was an opening for consultancy or want of a better word. Even that word gives me the the ick or, uh, you know, it's a bit fluffy for me that I'm frankly is the name of the business. I'm going in to essentially roll up my sleeves and be an extension of any brand or business I work with. I'll go in and I'll, I'll identify a strategy, find a problem and show where social could 
solve that problem or have some sort of impact. And then I'll build the internal team, the external resources or whatever is needed in order to try and execute that strategy effectively. And I'll stay then for a period of 12 months with each client and I'll work on the processes and developing it and trying to build a system that's sustainable and hand over the keys and ride off into the sunset. There are only some brands suitable for having a presence on social media. Yes and no. Again, there's an opportunity for everyone, providing you know why you're showing up or the role the platform can play. Because I'll give you an example. Retailers or or supermarkets, they spend huge millions of of euros and marketing across every channel. So reach is not their problem. But yet they're on social media posting the most vanilla product and price driven content, which is not content. It's just ads uh, on social media thinking that's an effective way to do it. And they're spending a lot of money. So can I just give you an example of that? Could that be so, for example, that at Christmas time, I'll just take a retailer like M&S, do these big, and like all of these sort of big retailers, do these big Christmas ads that become almost events in themselves. And they're the ones that people talk about rather than the vanilla ads across the 11 months, like you can get your uh, chickens for five euro or you can get your new trousers for 30 euro or whatever. Mm. Forward standard advertising, Mm. which sort of goes over your head, whereas the Christmas ads create a much better impression about the entire offering that you get, be it at MOS, Tesco or whoever. Well, it's brand building and like have that that amount of frequency and and that quality of creative is going to carry for a long period of time and it's going to have weight over the number of months. Now, there are brands who still do it all the time throughout the year. And even those price point ads still are as effective if it reaches the right amount of people. The point I was trying to make was that because they're communicating across TV, full page ads and print, radio ads, sponsorship, partnerships, digital advertising, that reach and awareness of their offering and the brand is not the problem. But yet they do the exact same thing on social, thinking that's what they need. And it's just a waste of time and budget when they're probably after reaching critical mass already. So what could the platforms do to solve a problem? There's surely something in the brand or the business that they're trying to fix that they could see could these platforms have impact and focus on that and do it well, drill down and get creative with repetition doing it. But for reputation, should a brand, for example, be on Twitter or X as it calls itself now, if it's getting a reputation as a platform that has become uh, home to all sorts of extremism and anti-Semitism and racism, uh, do you, should you, like some of the bigger American companies have decided, avoid it because you don't want to be tarnished by presence on it? It's a difficult one to answer. In theory, based on how you've articulated it, yes, we all should be doing it, but that's easier said than done. And people's moral compasses shift day and night because on every social media platform and anywhere we go, everyone is so easy to cancel and change their views day to day like the biggest moral compass they might cancel on Twitter today will be tomorrow's fish and chip paper and they're off to their next agenda or vendetta it's a very difficult one to answer because there's a lot of good on the platforms that are happening and again again I'm not trying not to drink Musk's Kool-Aid and certainly not other social media there are they do have their problems but a lot of that smoke is also amplified by how the media are telling the story again X is one of those ones where it is getting into a very dangerous space but social media as a whole you know there's there's fear and trauma and worries that are elevated by headlines because those say they're 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 writing those I guess those pieces of of, of media in the exact same way 
social media is probably causing problems. Okay, but let me throw you three examples that come immediately to mind. Should we be worried about being on TikTok because essentially you're allowing the Chinese government access to your data? Should you be worried about being on Facebook or Instagram because it's been shown by the whistleblower Francis Hagan mm. about how there has been a disregard for the safety of children, for example? Should you be on Twitter because of all of the things that I've mentioned already, which seem to have become rampant since Elon Musk took control and loosened control mm. of the place. My answer to these, it depends. No, of course, when you, when you put it on the table black and white, that is a scary place to be. But on the flip side, the platforms do have great creative and very positive places to be. The only problem is that it's been tarnished by this quite a lot. The platforms aren't doing enough. We're not doing enough to educate. And a lot of people control what they see and what they say themselves. So we all need to play a part in trying to make it better. I don't think it's solely just on the, the hands of the platforms. I don't think it's solely on the hands of the government. I think it, it's, it's, it's too complex to solve. It's scary as hell. Um, but again, I'm a big believer that I even take my own social media feeds. I have trained and I guess engaged with the things that I enjoy on those platforms. So the majority of things that I don't want to see, in most cases, I don't. And if I don't like it, I simply scroll on and I move away. Do, do you use social media for pleasure rather than for work still? It's a little bit of both. It's hard because it, I literally use it so much. Even It's very difficult for me to switch off, but I'm getting better. I'm probably getting frustrated with it. That's why I'm probably switching off with it more that, you know, I'm getting worn out by it. But just to finish up, is there too much social media in the world? Do we consume too much of it? Oh, yeah. But again, I think for, for us... I think it's because we're not growing up with it as much as the youth of today. And it's it's just, again, as, as I might have mentioned earlier, it's evolution. And we're so used to consuming media and information in different ways that we think this is necessarily a bad thing. And I am sure when radio came out, um, locals, when, when radio stations were being controversial or talking about things that were out of their comfort zone, said the same thing about radio. When TV came on, when things like, you know, rock was being played on televisions or, you know, all kind of new age music, yeah. the same things were happening. I think it's all down to just evolution. We're not overly comfortable with it because we're not the ones growing up with it. We're adapting to it. So when you ask the gen younger generations, they're just, it, it's, it's their media. So it's, I think it, it's just, we've, it evolves over time. And I think we'd be quite hypocritical if we were to be so flippant of it when, as I mentioned, radio and TV were disruptors, the, disruptors of, their time. of their time as well. Michael Corcoran, thank you so much for joining me on Magnified. Thanks very much, Matt. And that's it for today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. We hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please subscribe and recommend to a friend because uh, we have many other interviews conducted at my kitchen table with the support of the Strategic Power Connect. So until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you very much for listening. Goal Out presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go loud. Sounds better with us.